I mean, saving the world one cornhole at a time. That should be the, the tagline there. <laughs> <laughs> one bag at a time. Yeah, yes. one bag at a time. That That's probably a better, uh, that, that'll have less confusion going on with it. <laughs> This is The Art of Sustainable Investing, a show for outdoor lovers curious about the connection between purpose and profit. Walk, hike, or bike with me each week as I merge people you wouldn't expect to explore where green meets green in tech, real estate, and investing, all with the purpose to help you make better decisions to build wealth and meaningful impact around what matters most to you. I'm Morgan. Let's go on a journey together to climb mountains in life, business, and sustainability. Sponsored by Sustainable Investors Group. Transforming lives and reversing climate change with green real estate. And also by Aspiration Bank. Letting you put your money where your values are. By rewarding conscious consumerism. And offering peace of mind that none of your banking is fueling climate change. Check out the show notes or the end of the episode to learn more for a special $50 offer. I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as me, especially the part where Charlie Barron's tries to solve political partisanship with cornhole. Today is one of our very special summit roundtables, merging people you wouldn't expect. And the question we have today is communication with farmers the key to solving climate change. And to answer that question, we have a roundtable with Charlie Behrens and Paul Gamble. Paul is the CEO and founder of Nori, a startup focused on figuring out an efficient way to pay farmers to store carbon in their soil. And Charlie is Mr. Midwest Nice Guy himself, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, hilarious stand-up comedian, and generally super swag dude that supports veterans, farmers, and more with his amazing comedy platform. Expect some laughs and sincere brainstorming on how to talk to farmers about this exciting new commodity of carbon. We learn carbon marketplaces are supply constrained and companies like Apple and Stripe can't find enough places to buy carbon to meet their net zero pledges. We'll also learn from Charlie how difficult it is to find the time as a farmer to sort through the regulations and paperwork and the two of them together may come up with some solutions. This is the time where urban companies could be the bridge loan needed to regenerate the soil and help solve climate change. There might be a way forward, not only to decarbonize the world, but also give farmers back their time and autonomy and make them less reliant on federal programs, which we know are subject to ever-swinging politics, tariffs, and frustrations. Converting from conventional agriculture to regenerative agriculture may not be for everyone. But for curious investors, we go over some of the timeframes and strategies it takes not only to store carbon in the soil, but also to make it financially viable. So we have from Seattle, Paul Gamble, and from Milwaukee, Charlie Behrens. Charlie, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing uh, good. Yeah. Can't can't complain about, well, I could complain about a lot, but no one would care. So it's all good. <laughs> so fun fact, I'm over here in Germany and I saw Bill Clinton said Milwaukee is the most German city in the United States. Is that true? Really? 
You know, there are a lot of, I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of big steins on any bar you go into, you're going to find a stein somewhere. Okay. And in the back of it, you're going to find a broken stein. Cause when you combine steins with what's in the stein, that stein's not going to last for long, historically speaking, <laughs> especially in Milwaukee. So, but yeah, there's a big, big German population in Milwaukee. That's for sure. I mean, look, we got all the best sauce, all the best broad companies in the uh, in the world here. Mm. And yep, I'm going to double down on that. I'm going to double down. I actually live 30 minutes away from the world's largest wine festival. And mm. the name of it is the Sausage Market. Oh, well, that's it's weighted. So, OK, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing the math on that. That's fantastic. Okay. Yeah, we can get 600,000 people together to drink wine and eat sausage. But I never noticed a Wisconsin brought there. Ooh, well, how much wine were you drinking? That's the question. <laughs> Unfortunately, they serve it in like a half a liter glass. It's it's dangerous. <laughs> it's dangerous. Well, I, I know it all came from Germany, Bavaria, whatever you want to call it. That's where it all came from. So yeah, you are in the capital. I probably do have to bend the knee to that. Oh, that's good. I mean, maybe your Midwest guy should come check out the sausage market. Consider me there. That's awesome. Our entire office was dying when we were watching the Midwest Siri translator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cheryl Kaczynski, her name? Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually Cheryl Kaczynski. And folks, if you're unfamiliar with uh, what the deal is, you know, in the Midwest, allegedly we got an accent. I think it sounds pretty neutral. But anywho, is sometimes... Siri can't understand. He says, hey, there's Siri. Can I get directions to condom walk? She says, dialing 911, I think in a stroke. So if you just download the IOP3S, okay, that's IOPE tree. Okay, you get the update and Cheryl Lazinski comes on. Cheryl's just a good, good downhearted Midwest woman who lives on your phone and eventually in your brain because you didn't read the terms and conditions. So that's the, <laughs> that's the feel of that. <laughs> I just have to know, what was it like growing up as a kid around your dinner table? Well, I'm one in 12, so it was always pretty interesting. And when you're mass produced, you kind of have to like buy for not only food, which you do with a fork, you stab your sibling's hand uh, if they're going for that last problem. But also, you know, if you want, you try and make people laugh because a lot of times there's just chaos and you're just trying to, you know, ha have a laugh with it. Or <laughs> someone messed up and you're trying to lighten the mood. At least I always was. So that that was a real a real blessing. So you grew up as a kid in Wisconsin, right? Oh yeah, I, I should define that. Yeah, I'm I'm from Wisconsin, and you know, born and raised outside of Milwaukee, and then grandparents in Fond du Lac, and we would go vacation up north, right up by the UP. So went to school at UW. So kind of all around the state, I've got a connection to in some way or another. Did you end up leaving Wisconsin? Yeah, after I graduated, I traveled all around the country doing local news. I was in Michigan, Los Angeles, Dallas, D.C., South Carolina. I was going around the country doing local news and doing comedy. And then my Manitowoc Minute bit took off. And that allowed me to move back to Wisconsin, which I'd always wanted to do. There just wasn't really a job that um, I wanted to do there. So it was nice to make that job. So did you make Manitowoc Minute from not in Wisconsin? I made Manitowoc, Manitowoc Minute started as a stand-up character that I was doing because I was mm -hmm. doing local news and the Manitowoc Minute character originated as a guy who, instead of taking all the advice his news directors gave him, like the news director's advice would be like, you have a Wisconsin accent, you got to fix that. 
I fixed it. This character did not. This character just doubled down on everything that people said was wrong about his accent. And that's sort of the man talk man characters. You think it took moving away to realize that focusing on the Wisconsin side was what you needed to do to kind of reach the success you're at now? I think in some ways that's true because, it, you know, look, I went to broadcast, did some broadcast training to work on my voice, but it, I had a very thick Wisconsin accent. I, I really had no idea until I started doing that. And it's kind of like, you know, a fish, a perch swimming in Lake Winnebago. He's got no idea that he's swimming in water until some guy with Crocs and camo cargo shorts catches him. And then he's dangling, looking at him. And he's like, are you God? And the guy's like, yeah, no. Uh, and you're too small. I'm sending you back. You know, and then that fish is like, holy smokes, you never guess there's a, this weird world out there. And so the, I'm kind of like that perch, I think. Does that analogy hold water? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Keep <laughs> working on it, guy. But yeah, so I do think it took leaving in order to find out that the quirky thing about me and, and maybe the quirky thing about the culture that I know and love so much in the Midwest. I'm not even from Wisconsin, but so much of what you say is so relatable and I think especially this past year, it's been so refreshing because your content is positive, it's self-effacing, it's real, but it's super funny. And it's kind of the antidote of all this stuff that's bad with media right now, like the division and partisanship and being offended at everything. It just hits that sweet spot. Thank you. That's that's very kind of very kind of you to say, and that's certainly a hope to kind of be a bridge uh, to bring people who may think opposite things together. Because yeah, there's nothing more exhausting than listening to another Twitter diatribe about one thing or another. It's like, oh, I can't, you know, and I think mm -hmm. a lot of people feel that way. Because it, it, it's not that we don't care, but it's this negative way some people approach issues. How are you ever going to convince somebody on the other side if you're just if if you're approaching it in such a negative way? I don't think it's going to work. If it if it was going to work, it would have worked by now. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, and and that's kind of the point of this roundtable is to bring people together and find a common path or a, another solution forward. So Wisconsin's so kind of evenly split between sort of different ideologies. Do you think that gives you some kind of insight on how to communicate better across boundaries? Yeah, I mean, I do stand-up shows all across the Midwest, but it started in Wisconsin. And I am very, I mean, I try to keep up on all the issues. And I don't think it's it's good to ignore the issues that are very important. But I think finding a way that you find that relatability thing in every issue, every issue's got its common ground. So maybe starting there, my job, I, I wouldn't say is to ever convince somebody of one way or another, but it's just to bring people to the table so they can figure out. I, I, I don't know the right answers in 95% of cases, but I know that it doesn't have to be a life or death argument every time. So my hope is to just bring people to the table in some way. Mm -hmm. Our family became raving fans of yours after the cornhole YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> With the, yeah. the underwhelming sports competition. Um, yeah, that's great. That, that was with Trevor uh, Wallace, who's a phenomenal actor. And Tom Johnson was in that. So, it was yeah, fantastic. I'm glad you like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, so my, my husband and I have been spending the last five years building a cornhole league in Europe. You guys hit it right on the head. It's kind of boring, but 
it's easy enough for anyone to do. And so you get all kinds of people together that may have different thoughts, different ideologies, different politics over a game of cornhole. And it's long enough, though, that you do have some talking going on. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to get that nowadays. We're so kind of go in our own neighborhoods with people who think and look like us and it's just that bridge, right? It's a vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, saving the world one cornhole at a time. That should be the, the tagline. There. <laughs> <laughs> one bag, one bag at a time. Yeah, one bag at a time. That that's probably a better. Uh, that that'll have less confusion going on with it. <laughs> yeah, Charlie, can you share with us some of the um, charities or groups of people that you like to support with your um, platform? Yeah, we've done a lot of work with BFW of Wisconsin, uh, Boys and Girls Club uh, of Milwaukee, uh, United Way. Last year, they were doing a lot of efforts with the Derate Show in Iowa, so, uh, the Juvenile Diabetes. We have a show coming up for them, a benefit show, and then next week, Children's Hospital. And yeah. uh, also have a vehicle for other people who are well-meaning but don't know what to do to kind of drive that to one organization. Yeah, that is so fantastic. What motivates you to do that? Uh, Guilt, Catholic guilt, mostly Uh, the hope of getting out of purgatory earlier. Um, That's really my number (laughs) one motivator. Yeah. So my grandma can't say enough rosaries to get me out soon enough. So I've got to do these good deeds. And I don't have enough money for indulgences. So, you know, this is where I'm really investing my uh, hope for the afterlife. So. <laughs> well, you know, one way or another, right? One way or another. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, you got to hedge your bets when it comes to the next world. So there you go. Yeah, I hear you. Sacred Heart Elementary School here. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'm just going to move over to the other side of the round table and introduce Paul Gamble. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. How are you? I'm good, Morgan. Thanks. I also grew up Catholic for what it's worth. (laughs) (laughs) A good friend of mine had mentioned, I think, one of your co-founders as someone who's changing the world and doing amazing things. I've never really heard about carbon marketplaces. I've heard a little bit about carbon offsets and not so clear about it. But when I went on LinkedIn repeatedly, I kept seeing your Nori coming up as, quote, the dark horse doing it right. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I like that. I, I like that characterization. I always, uh, I always want to be like the second or third place horse in the race. So you can, you come back in the wind. The, the horse jumps out in front, never wins. C- carbon markets are like 20, 25 years old at this point. And they come from a concept of uh, how do we deal with the fact that like carbon emissions are continuing to increase and uh, we got to stop that because climate change is, is happening because of an excess amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's difficult to just kind of arbitrarily say, hey, you got to stop emitting carbon because carbon emissions come from things that are useful and valuable to us. We need energy to produce all our goods and services and the lifestyles that we live. And not just in the developed world, but we want, it would be nice if people in the developing world had access to those kinds of things too. So, but there is a trade-off. There are consequences to that. And carbon markets are trying to say, is there a way that where we can create new incentive structures uh, so that uh, we can get the best of what we want out of energy and other things like that uh, while reducing the harmful effects? So the first generation of those have been around for 20 plus years. And what Nori's working on is trying to iterate on that and produce something that can actually work better in a more modern context. Mm-hmm. So how does that how does it work, you know, on a practical level? 
if we're speaking directly about this question, can farmers reverse climate change? Mm -hmm. Let's just go back to basic. Carbon emissions go up in the atmosphere. They stay in the atmosphere. That causes warming as sunlight comes in. It traps heat in the atmosphere. And then that causes melting of permafrost in the Arctic. And we're, we're trapping more and more heat. We're in this kind of like runaway cycle. So the problem is too many greenhouse gases. And then the solution, therefore, is let's get rid of those greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Let's pull them back out and store them somewhere. Climate change is so often discussed as a political problem, but I think that's the completely wrong way to frame it. It's an engineering problem. The carbon is in the wrong place and we have to move it. And we have to figure out how to do it at a really, really large scale because the amount of carbon dioxide that has been emitted since the Industrial Revolution is a, an insanely large amount. We need to remove over one and a half trillion tons, trillion with a T, in order to get back to the same levels that we had before we started burning fossil fuels and all of that. So if the solution is to pull the gases back out, then we need to start looking around, okay, what are the different ways that we could remove carbon? We could store it in soils, we could plant trees, we could grow kelp, we could build industrial facilities like direct air capture, we could uh, put it in construction materials, and so on and so on. There, there are lots of different ways. We have all of these. We've known about these for a long time, but they haven't been happening. And so the real problem is uh, that we should ask is why isn't it happening? What do people need in order to do this? And that's where I come back to incentives. Like if you want people to do something, the easiest way to get them to do it is to pay them to do it. And so that's what Nori is trying to do is we're trying to make it easy for people to pay other people to pull carbon out of the air and store it. And so how does Nori facilitate this? We partner today with farmers in the U.S. who are sequestering carbon in their soils. And this is coming from adopting new regenerative practices, which are, it's funny that people call it new because these are really the old practices. It's just not plowing the land so much. Uh, it's planting cover crops in the winter, so you're keeping roots in the ground, doing different and more complex crop rotations, maybe managed grazing. You mentioned ranchers earlier. We're trying to increase the amount of organic matter that's in the soil. So soil is a mixture of dirt and rocks and minerals and microbes and fungi and other small little creatures. And when we do conventional ag, uh, we're plowing the fields at the beginning of the season, turning over that soil and exposing all the organic matter up to the air where a lot of it dies off. That's, that's basically what soil erosion is so when you hear that term. And then, you know, they plant their crops apply fertilizer, they harvest the crops in the fall, and then typically leave the fields empty throughout the winter, and then repeat the process the next year. And uh, it's also fairly common to leave fields fallow for like a whole season to, to rest and just not be used in that way. So that's, that's conventional ag. And regenerative ag is saying, okay, instead, don't actually plow or don't plow as intensely at the beginning of the season, maybe do more direct injection of seeds. And then at the end of your uh, growing season, harvest your cash crop and plant cover crops like uh, rye or alfalfa or legumes or something. And you're keeping roots in the ground because what's happening is you plant the crop, your photosynthesis is pulling CO2 out of the air, and then it's turning that into nutrients that through the roots are being deposited to the microbes and the fungi that are in the soil. And in turn, those microbes and fungi break down minerals and provide them back to the plants. It's a very symbiotic sort of thing. That organic matter, the microbes and fungi, that is the carbon. So we want mm -hmm. to be increasing that. For farmers, what, what's really fun about this is we don't 
necessarily have to work with farmers who are super motivated for environmentalist reasons or wanting to deal with climate change. Adopting these practices is better for their soil, is better for their land, and they're going to increase their crop yields over time. They're going to become more drought and flood resistant. They're going to reduce their fertilizer and fuel costs. So this is a, a really good long-term investment, but it it takes time before you start to see those increased crop yields and see the savings from that. And it's a somewhat risky endeavor, like farming is a low margin business. So paying farmers for storing carbon is the perfect form of bridge financing to get through that sort of valley of death as they go through that conversion. So it's yeah. this is like an amazing uh, two for one win-win uh, yeah, yeah. situation where we can actually sequester carbon and we can help farmers improve the quality and health of their land. So it sounds like it's a heritage style of producing food and managing livestock. If it's so beneficial and there are ways to sort of have the farmer have a bridge loan to get through the initial period of time that it takes that to happen, why is it so hard to get people to do this? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is federal crop insurance programs. This has been around since the New Deal era. And what that means, though, is that in order to comply with those programs, that you end up conforming and doing practices that you might not necessarily have chosen to do on your land. But the financial risk of going without that crop insurance uh, seems too great. That's why, especially in the U.S., this is far less common than it is in other countries where they don't have that same sort of crop insurance program. That's, that's I mean, there are multiple reasons, but that's one of the big ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, my grandparents were dairy farmers in Idaho. So I can imagine the margins are very slim and it's very hard work and it's hard to be kind of told what to do all the time, like your power taken away from you. Um, For sure. Yeah. And Which is basically the story of farming in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if this, this new approach where you can use the carbon profits from the carbon marketplace can bridge the farmer, how many years on average would it take them to sort of catch up? with the regenerative practices to start to see those benefits? I mean, it's really going to be variable depending on like the state of the land in, in their starting point and the, what crops are growing and where they're located and all of these types of things. But some, somewhere between five and 10 years seems to be the average based on previous studies that have been done where they'll start seeing better ROI overall from adopting the practices. And, and again, think- that has nothing to do with any of the carbon side of things. That's just the, the land itself. Right. Who's actually buying these? Who's who's on the buyer side? Yeah, it's a mix of consumers and businesses. We're mostly focused on businesses who are trying to go carbon neutral or meet commitments that they've been making to be carbon net zero by certain dates and that kind of thing. So something that's, there have been a lot of surveys recently, something like 85 to 90% of consumers are interested in purchasing from more sustainable brands. And this is uh, fast becoming a like cultural phenomenon. It's really changed and shifted in the last few years where more and more people are doing this. So it's not just consumers, but it's also employees of companies and shareholders of companies. And that all of these factors are, are pushing these businesses to uh, be considering what is their own environmental impact? How do they negate that, reverse that impact? And there have been carbon offsets in the past and offsets are about things that like reduce future emissions or avoid future emissions. But what hasn't been on the table until recently is the ability to remove emissions, act- actively pulling it out of the atmosphere and storing it in the ground. And that's where uh, businesses are kind of shifting towards is like that. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't like make more intuitive sense. You put it up and then you pull it out. That's yeah. it's, it's straightforward. 
<laughs> I've been having some discussions with some of your European counterparts and one of the exciting methods they talked about was putting it into volcanic rocks from Iceland or something. There's all kinds yeah, of crazy, yeah. interesting ways to do it. My question is if they had a small business, let's say they had a, a small real estate business, for example, and they wanted it mm -hmm. for their mission and for their branding. If they did buy something, how would they know it was actually making a proper yeah. impact? So quick history lesson. The carbon offsets came about after the late 90s when frameworks were set up at the UN level to develop carbon markets. And they were originally intended to be trading of carbon credits between nation states. So uh, the idea was developed countries would be paying developing countries for carbon, uh, like avoided deforestation and carbon reduction planting trees and that, and that kind of thing. But it's evolved to be much more like voluntary and corporate driven. And there are a number of what are called offset registries in existence that have been around for like 15 or 20 years. These are companies that are they're actually nonprofits and they create what they call protocols that carbon credit projects can conform to. So it, it's the answering the question of how do we know that this carbon project actually happened? We can't see carbon, we can't smell it. So we have to find other ways to kind of prove the validity of it. And there are all these different steps to it. Like you have to, you have to have a, what's called a validator build out a model that estimates the amount of carbon associated with the project. You have to have a verifier who is separate, who is then checking to make sure you're actually doing the project. And then you work with brokers who are trying to sell the credits on your behalf. And then there are also all these different consultants. So there are all these middlemen involved. It's a very complex process and it requires a lot of money to get started in this so before i got involved to the point of starting nori i was looking into how do i just set up my own carbon offsets project and i was looking with a group of uh, like-minded people and we were looking at this dairy digester project out in eastern washington it would have cost one and a half million dollars just to get started there's the capital required for the actual operations the equipment and the land and all of that but there's also all of these fees that you have to pay for consultants and validators into the registries because the registries make their money by charging the suppliers. You have to pay all sorts of fees to them. So it just seems like there are all these barriers to entry in place preventing new supply coming online. So from that, we really took away the, the learning that carbon markets are not demand constrained they're really supply constrained. There is nowhere near enough supply to meet existing demand and certainly future demand. The total number of carbon credits that have ever been created is somewhere between four and six billion tons, which might sound like a lot, but we emit globally about 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalent every single year. So the total number of carbon credits is only 10% of one year's worth of annual emissions. We've been doing this for over two decades. Mm -hmm. So like we've got to increase the pace at which we are developing new carbon removal projects. And that's really like Nori's primary goal. We're trying to change that whole system, get rid of all of those middlemen and make it much, much simpler so that not only can you create new supply projects, new carbon removal projects, but also make sure that more money ends up in the hands of the people who are removing the carbon. Cut out all of these middlemen. They don't need to take all of their fees. More money can go to the farmers. That's excellent. That's super cool. I just want to make sure we get to know our guests a little bit, Paul. Can you tell us when you first became very passionate about sustainability? Yes, I remember the exact moment. It was 
I was in college. I was at a uh, music festival in Michigan, and I remember sitting on the lawn. And I was watching these trees that were just kind of their leaves were just kind of fluttering in the wind, and uh, just kind of the circumstances of the moment helped me feel really a lot more connected to the earth in a way that I hadn't uh, exactly felt before. And then some books I was reading at the time just kind of started getting me thinking more and more about like these complex systems, like the the ratio of different gases in the atmosphere is actually like very fragile and small amounts of changes can have really large ripple effects on it. And that that kind of set me on that path of kind of just thinking about how are we managing this? We do things that make an impact. Okay, fine. There are consequences to that. How do we mitigate those consequences? I don't want to live in a world where we don't have access to cheap energy, but I do want to live in a world where I can still go skiing in the Cascade Mountains in 50 years. On present path, that's not going to happen. So we should change something about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, climate change is definitely one of the number one problems we face and surrounding the football on it, attacking it on all edges. Certainly it's got to happen. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And now is my favorite part of the show. I just want to open it up to a round table. And so I'll step out and I'll just let you guys talk. So Charlie's got the pulse of the Midwest and frequently has farmers on his show. And then Paul, you're trying to communicate with farmers about how they can add income streams. And even if they're not particularly interested about environmental impact, there's a, a fantastic business opportunity here. Yeah, I, I guess on, on that note, Paul, what would be the process if there's a farmer in Wisconsin who's watching this right now? And I, I want to do this. I want to get involved in it. But, you know, my day to day is so tough that I, yep. I don't have time for it. You know, do you have sort of liaisons that can help manage this? And is it an yeah. up cost to the farmer? Or is there sort of like an easy in that they can start the process or at least start like, I don't know, fitting their farm or getting on a plan to do this? Because I think the farmers I know, they're so busy on a daily basis that this may just totally. not be in the cards. That's that's the root of the problem. Yeah, hit the nail on the head. So. First, farmers have to adopt their practices, right? Like that's, we're not necessarily in that business. And there are banks and other groups that are interested in helping finance that sort of thing. So that's the very first step. And then after they've made those practice changes, then what we need is we have to collect a whole bunch of operating data about the farms. And we're never taking ownership of the data. This is, it always remains owned by the farmer. We're just using it to help us quantify the amount of carbon that they're storing. So we need operating data on their land, things like what crops they were growing on, what rotations, where their fields are located, what kind of fertilizer they applied, when they irrigated, th those types of things, like their level of tillage, that kind of thing. And what we found is that it's a far more efficient process for both Nori and for the farmers to work with a, a liaison that we call data managers. So there are a bunch of companies that we're partnering with on this. For example, granular locus ag, we're getting started soon with Land Lakes and with John Deere on, on how we might be able to import data that they've already got in their own platforms and make that a much smoother, faster, simpler process. So these data managers are kind of helping manage that data enrollment process, asking the questions of, about, of the farmers about you know, how, they, um, how they operated on their land going back in history. And then 
once we've got that full data set, then it goes to run through our partners at a company that's called Soil Metrics. And they are, they're, they're a spin out from Colorado State University. They're funded by the USDA and they're able to quantify from that operating data and say, this is how much carbon you're storing relative to what would have happened if you just continued with the conventional practices. Then that data has to be uh, verified by an independent third party not a complex process. The verifier is looking at like maybe receipts or invoices for seed or fertilizer purchases. Maybe they're looking at satellite imagery to show us you were growing corn soy rotation over the last few years on this land. And then the verifier is signing off and then we issue the certificates that the farmers can then sell uh, through our marketplace to buyers. We're trying to continually make this a lot easier because not only are they super busy, but also when it's either planting or harvest season, they have no time whatsoever to work on anything like this because they've got to run their business. So right. these are d different things that we can do to try to take some of that load off their backs. Is there a certification that then goes on the products you buy in the same way there's an organic certification? That is something that a lot of people want to do. There are efforts that companies are making. I think Annie's they're a CPG doing cookies and crackers and that kind of thing. They've been doing that. There's the regenerative organic labeling thing that Patagonia has been leading. There are some other efforts that, that people want to apply as labels, but nothing has reached anywhere near that same level of standardization that organic has. But a lot of people see opportunity in that. Yeah, I think probably the toughest thing you're coming up against is that immediate hit. I think just we as creatures are, we want to know the benefit. I mean, if I'm at a bar in Watertown, Wisconsin. And, you know, there's a big farming community around there. And I'm talking about business or whatever. And yeah, I've got this carbon sequestration thing coming in. I, the first question would be like, why in the hell do you have that? I would, I'm imagining this. But if the yeah. immediate answer is, oh, I'm making a lot of money off it, then boom, it's going to yep. take off like crazy. So, but I feel like the windmills took off right away because they had immediate subsidies. I wonder almost mm -hmm. if it would be worth instead of the crop subsidies that you have the carbon subsidies, it's the same. Instead yeah. of getting paid for your crop, you just get paid for the sequestration thing because, and then that promotes the crop usage that you're talking about too in the same mm -hmm. swoop. So maybe it's a lobbyist that often do the dirty work. Maybe they can do the clean yep. work. Oh, geez, please. I don't know it, what I'm thinking is just that immediate financial hit is what's going to be necessary. Because I think as soon as yeah. people see, I got to go through all these processes, they're like, oh, the hell with it. Yeah, there, there's a lot of talk happening in the Biden administration now about how USDA can help incentivize people to do these sorts of practices. And I, I think some of the ideas are good and some of them are not. But one of the best ones would be a tax credit program. There's already a similar thing for other types of carbon capture and utilization, but it doesn't apply to carbon and soil. But a tax credit paying for the amount of sequestration that they're doing would be a great way to do that. And that can be additional to whatever carbon payments they get for storing the carbon. That's a stacking of benefits that really makes that a lot more valuable. And then, like I mentioned earlier, there are banks that are interested in, we're trying to create a whole financial market side of thing of what we're doing that I haven't really talked about. But we're interested in working with parties who want to help with low interest loans or financing of regenerative transitions in ways where everyone can win uh, financially in the end too. It's, it's about getting paid. And if, if they can get paid, then they'll be interested in doing it. And if they can't, then it's too much of a pain. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this whole ecosystem of you have the those who farm or those who do a lot of the very 
hard, daily taxing, blue collar, real good work. And from my experience and family members and friends, I don't have a lot of time to think about that kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, and though you have like kind of the hippies, yuppies, hipsters, you know, whatever you want to call them, those people who are all like, I'm going to get this organic tea at the grocery store, you know, and if they got enough money for organic, the money is there uh, in in those people to pay for all of this. It's just finding that vehicle. And maybe it's that vehicle is like, oh, I only bank with Chase because they give loans to get this sort of stuff going. So I think it's, it may just even be a marketing issue of tying all this together, you know, and I, I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out there. No, I, I I think you're pretty much exactly right. The carbon emissions are coming from the cities that have that use a lot of energy. And there's a lot of concrete and uh, that produces a lot of emissions. So this can be if this were scaled up a really equitable way to bring more money into rural areas, which, of course, have been hollowed out over the last 70 years or so. It's this could help with social issues too, with political divides and that kind of thing. I, I, that's not necessarily like the main goal, but I think that could be a really positive ripple effect benefit. I 100% agree. Yeah, it's it's exciting to see the potential for it. So yeah. I, there's a lot of work, obviously. Uh, I'm yeah. glad, that, glad you're doing it because I, I wouldn't know where to start, but uh, it's really cool to see. Yeah, Paul's making Bitcoin for carbon happen yeah it's very cool yeah there is a there is a cryptocurrency involved in this and that's more of like the financial side i was just referring to you want like in any good commodities market you've got a lot of liquidity meaning there are lots of people trading these things the more people that are trading something the more confident you can feel that the price of that thing is accurately reflecting what the market truly wants so, so you always want to have more and more liquidity coming into your commodity market. There was this concept originally with carbon markets that you would be able to trade carbon credits. So typically what happens in, in these old legacy registries is you'll do your project and then you'll sell your credits to a broker and then they'll sell them to someone else and then to someone else and someone else and someone else. But I don't really think that makes a lot of sense because if we're talking about carbon and we were talking about trying to solve climate change in a really rapid and effective way, we shouldn't be paying for the same ton multiple times. We should be paying for a net new ton of carbon dioxide every single time. In Norius Market, one of the like key design changes we've done, and this is why we're not working with any of the existing offset registries, we're competing with them, is when a buyer purchases a ton of CO2 from a farmer, it's immediately retired, which is carbon market language, meaning you're saying, I'm not going to resell this. It's, it's done. I own it forever. So all carbon that nori sells is immediately retired but if we do that then we lose the ability to have a tradable asset that can create a real commodities market so that's why we've introduced a token a cryptocurrency here where one nori token can always purchase one ton of co2 And the price of that Nori token is going to fluctuate based on supply and demand. So then you can look at the price of the token as the carbon price. That's the reference price for how much carbon is valued at when you remove one ton of it. So that's, and that creates all sorts of other potential opportunities that can scale this up. So that's what we're doing here. You're really rethinking money altogether. 
Actually, it's funny you say that because one of the most inspirational books I've ever read is called Rethinking Money. It's, it's by this, this late economist named Bernard Lietier, who was actually one of the architects of the euro. The book is it's so fascinating and it's it's a bunch of different case studies of different times throughout like the 20th and 21st century when people have created new currencies in a very like localized sort of way that have helped revitalize community economies. So my favorite story in it was a coastal city in Brazil that had a lot of uh, trash and waste in their bay in the water. And they didn't have the resources at the city municipal level. They didn't have the resources to just like actually go clean all of that up. And so, but what they did have was a transit system with buses and people paid for those buses with little coin tokens. And so the city decided, we'll give you extra bus tokens if you, for every like bag of trash that you bring in from the water and you can prove that you brought it from the water. So they started doing that and people who had free unemployed people who uh, wanted to, to earn some extra money started doing that. And then it led to a situation where local shops started accepting the tokens, the, these bus tokens that otherwise had no value. They were only used for buses, but they started accepting these tokens because then more and more people were acknowledged. There's some actual like additional value to this kind of thing. And it ended up creating a much more vibrant local economy so there were new businesses being created. The land got, the water got cleaned up and they did all of this without any outside capital or money coming in. So this concept of creating new currency can actually produce new value. It's almost like magic. It's people are putting labor in, they're creating new value and they're able to transact with each other. And that's how you improve your land and your, your livelihood and so on. So yeah, it's absolutely rethinking money. Yeah, I, I think that's incredible. I mean, if you can get a bunch of people to buy Bitcoin, whatever that is, you could get people to buy anything, I think, yeah. you know, and especially yeah. if it's going to help the planet. I think that's awesome. It doesn't matter what kind of money or currency you're talking about. It only has value because people believe it has value, whether it's the dollar or gold or or anything else or, or Bitcoin. So it's the same thing here. And we're just tying that value to something that really happens in real life, which is removing and sequestering carbon. It's like a commodity pegged sort of currency. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I know we're running short on time. So as this is a show for outdoor lovers, I just wanted to ask Charlie first, what role did the outdoors play for you as a kid growing up? Uh, it was everything. I wasn't into video games. So it was my video game. Uh, I loved biking and it was being one in 12, you're always looking for your independence and freedom. And I found that outside and on my bikes. I've always had deep love for it. Also fishing, grew up fishing. So it's it's always been that thing that I've connected to first. Mm -hmm. So that walleye is real in your character? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all I'm a, always <laughs> walleyes are the gold standard for me. So, yeah, well, on, on your cornhole video, I noticed you had a pretty good release, like you might actually play. So here yeah. I wanted for thanking you for coming on the show. I wanted to send you one of our Konkin cornhole bags from Cornhole Europa. That is awesome. Yeah, we can very cool. Very good sliders. So you wouldn't <laughs> you would not believe this, but my friend Frank last year organized a Scandinavian cornhole cruise where we've had an onboard cornhole tournament between Oslo, Copenhagen, and Hamburg. COVID canceled it, but it'll happen in the future. So keep <laughs> practicing. Great. Maybe you can represent Wisconsin if you come on the cornhole cruise. 
I would love it. I would love nothing more. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. And Paul, how about you? What role did the outdoors play for you? So I grew up in Phoenix in Arizona and the outdoors are uncomfortable there <laughs> to say the least. So we didn't really do like uh, camping or, or anything like that very much. But when I got into college, I started doing triathlons outside and um, literally started doing my own camping. And, and then I moved to Seattle after school and that's really where I, I fell in love with it here. So I love skiing. I love kayaking, hiking in the forest. It's just, it, it, it just, it's like what we're as humans, we're, we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be outside. We're supposed to breathe that air from, from trees and stuff. And so it's just very much the opposite of where I grew up. And I, I love it here. And I love the water and the mountains and, and everything that goes along with that. Absolutely. Paul, if people wanted to learn more about carbon farming, carbon marketplaces, where, mm -hmm. where would they go? So I have two suggestions. One is just nori.com, N-O-R-I.com. That's our website. We have tons and tons and tons of content on there. Um, we also have a podcast. Um, so it's called Reversing Climate Change. And it's a weekly show. We've been doing this for like three years now, interviewing different people working in the space who are, um, we've had a lot of farmers and ranchers on, but we also talk with other entrepreneurs who are building other types of carbon removal businesses, writers who are working on different concepts around carbon. There's like a whole like religion series that we did on there and how, how that relates. So lots of interesting, good content on the Reversing Climate Change podcast. And you can find all of that at nori.com. Very cool. Very cool. And Charlie, how about you? How can our audience get in touch with you? You can just Google Charlie Barons. It's on, you know, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram, TikTok, or Man's Watch Minute. So if you just Google either of those, they'll all pop up. And, uh, and I also have a Cast podcast that, you know, is fun. And we talk to just a variety of different people. Um, and so, yeah, it's all that. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for helping us on this, this movement to try to tear down the walls between doing well and doing good. All right. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having Yeah. Thank yeah. you. I really appreciate it. What a great show. It's a little bit of out of the box thinking. But that's what it's going to take to solve this massive problem of climate change. And like Paul said, one of the best ways is just to incentivize the right people to do the right thing. The power of regenerative farming is massive. But first, we need to communicate right. And we don't need to lie all the responsibility of the cities onto rural farmers. And I don't know about you, but I see this potential where we can trade our, our crypto for carbon and bring wealth from the cities to the rural areas and also improve the soil and reduce erosion and improve farmers' yields at the same time. Win, win, win. And that's what we're all about here on The Art of Sustainable Investing. Thanks so much for listening. If you got any value from this, please pull out your phone and share this episode with a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to build this community. Go ahead and join our Facebook group called Sustainable Investors Group to learn more about the strategies we talk about here. And please subscribe and leave a written review on your podcast player of choice. It really helps. If you know anyone that wants to be a guest, please email us directly at sustainableinvestorsgroup at gmail.com. Listen up, folks. We all know we need to consume less. Less everything. But let's be real, we do need to buy some stuff. But I want to take back my financial power and not be greenwashed 
And I'll bet you do too. Did you know, despite the green marketing, the four biggest banks in America lend more than 240 billion of their customers' money to fossil fuel projects every year. That's why we've partnered with Aspiration Bank, an FDIC-insured online banking and investing platform. It doesn't greenwash you with fancy hype. They are 100% divested from fossil fuels, so you can have the peace of mind that your banking isn't fueling climate change. Plus, you can plant your change, a set-it-and-forget-it feature where you round up to the nearest dollar and they plant a tree every time you swipe your debit card. That's super satisfying. But remember, if you don't need it, don't buy it. Go for a hike instead. Check out our show notes to learn more. Do your own research. And if you sign up with our link, get an exclusive $50 to join. Until next time, climb your mountains. (laughs) 